0: All right, I guess I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm Aram Sinreich. This is my new book. Brian asked me to talk about the book. The book has about 300 pages in it, and I have 30 minutes, which is supposed to include Q&A. So you guys can do the math. I'm not going to talk about the whole book. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the whole book, but then I'm going to drill into one particular area that I think is especially relevant to SF Music Tech. Sorry, I was at Music Tech Fest in Boston a few weeks ago. No, no, no. They're good. They're good. We're all the same tribe. We just kind of go from place to place. We're like Bedouins in the desert. So the first part of the book is kind of about the history of the music industry. You know, there's this notion oftentimes when we talk about this book is fundamentally about music, uh, society, law, policy, and technology. And there's this notion that, uh, that when people start talking about uh, music, you know, we begin by thinking about record labels. We begin by thinking about recorded music. We begin by thinking about music as a commodity, as a product, as something that's bought and sold. And so all conversations turn into, well, how can we make sure that the people who used to get paid for buying and selling things uh, keep getting paid? So in order to kind of move the conversation away from that, I spend the first third of the book kind of looking at first the ancient history of the music industry and then the recent history, the last two or three decades, and basically say we have to understand that music is a lot more than just that. Music is more than, uh, more than a product on a shelf. It's more than a commodity. It is a fundamental, foundational aspect of human culture and human consciousness. And none of the economic value that so many of the companies represented here today recognized for music would be possible if it weren't for that foundational aspect of what music is. So in order to build businesses uh, that move forward and that think about music in original innovative and productive ways, we really have to rethink what music is and go back to the first principles. So that's the first third of the book. Boom, I've done it. Uh, I do it a lot more eloquently in a hundred pages. Um, the, the middle of the book, which I'm also not going to talk about today, uh, really sets the record straight on the last 15 years and says this whole piracy argument, this whole notion that the IFPI and the RIAA and the MPAA keep putting forward that um, everything was just going fine. Everyone was making scads of money. Everybody was happy. Then Napster came along and, boom, just destroyed the industry. It's bullshit. It's patent bullshit. Maybe a lot of you in this room know that because you've been working in the industry. You know the ins and the outs of it. Or maybe you've bought the, you know, drunk the Kool-Aid, as they say. I don't know. Maybe you can address me during the Q&A section and we can talk about that. But I have a pretty compelling argument that's backed up by a shit ton of data. For those of you who don't know who I am, before I was a professor, before I was in academia, I used to run music research at a firm in New York called Jupiter Research. So I was there for the whole dot-com boom and bust, and then the whole Web 2.0 boom and bust, and have now been around uh, three times. And I'm feeling like a little bit like a, a pony on one of those uh, uh, circus rides. You know, that just kind of keeps. Go, keeps moving but keeps coming back to the same place um, that's reinforces the total sidebar but that's reinforced by the fact that I'm also a uh, jazz and soul musician and so I've now lived long enough that I've seen the music that I play go in and out of style for three cycles as well uh, which is very exciting um, so this is the section of the book that I'm actually going to be talking about today which is okay so we know that music uh, is a fundamental aspect of human consciousness and Society, we know that the piracy narrative is maybe has grains of truth in it, but is largely bullshit. What are we doing in the name of fighting piracy, of this, fighting this boogeyman, this phantom threat that doesn't really exist? And what are the collateral damages of that war? So I get pretty deep into it, and for me, the stuff that I care the most deeply about is in Chapter 8, Uh, which is where I talk about the kind of civil liberties dimension. And I wrote this before Snowden's revelations about the scope of NSA surveillance, but basically what I said is we're building a legal and technological infrastructure that allows us, enables us, commands us to spy on one another, to censor speech, to do all kinds of things uh, that render self-governance and democracy impossible in the networked age. And we're going to fuck ourselves. We're going to destroy our society if we pursue these laws and policies. Uh, But before I get there, I talk about the effects of the kind of piracy rhetoric, what I call the piracy crusade, in this book of the same title. Uh, I talk about what its effect uh, on on industry is. And the way that I do that is I actually get into five uh, deep uh, conversations and profiles of five failed digital music startups over the past 15 years. So that's what I'm actually going to present to you guys. The chapter is called No Good Idea Goes Unpunished. And so these are based with uh, in-depth interviews with the principals. Most of the people that I talk to I've actually known for the past 15 or 20 years. And so I've, I've kind of watched them as they brought their wonderful ideas to the fore and then just got smacked down uh, for no good reason. And I want to say going into this, if any of you are label people or or publishers, um, this is not one of those like labels are bad, musicians are good, fuck the man kind of uh, conversations. There are incredibly smart people, good people, nice ethical people who love music working at major corporations. The problem isn't that the people are stupid or the people are mean or the people are venal. The problem is that we have a legal and economic system that is fundamentally incapable of adapting to the kind of innovation that digital technology puts forward and so over and over and over again you see these ideas oftentimes the same ideas as I'll talk about briefly being turned into business models and then those business models despite the best efforts of oftentimes people within the industry themselves the business models not being able to take off and not being able to to provide a new foundation for uh, recorded industry uh, recorded music as an industry to grow so I'm going to talk about these, I, again, you know, I only have like 25 minutes left, and I want to take time for Q&A and have a conversation with you guys. So these are going to be somewhat brief, but I want to give you a taste of the journeys that these, uh, these failed digital music startups have been through, and hopefully it'll be a cautionary tale uh, for those of you here who represent um, aspiring digital music startups. So let's start uh, at the heart of the music industry. This is the Capitol Re- Records Building in Hollywood. Um, And EMI, which is, of course, no longer really its own record label, uh, back in the 1990s was. And there was a guy sitting on the ninth floor, one of the the high floors. This is another sidebar, but the funniest thing I've ever said, and my wife will tell you it's a short list, but the funniest thing I've ever said was uh, when I went to visit Ted Cohen... Uh, who you may have seen this morning, uh, in his office in EMI, and he was all proud because he had this big office, and I said, what, no corner office? He didn't get it. But I thought it was pretty funny. Um, anyway, so there's a guy sitting uh, on the ninth floor of this building. His name is Jeremy Silver. Some of you might know Jeremy. He's the head of Symmetric, uh, which owns Music Metric right now. We have a representative in the room. Um, Jeremy, uh, back in the late 90s, was the VP of licensing at, um, at, uh, at EMI. And uh, he would have, his job was basically to sit there, at the table when digital music startups came to him and said, we have this great idea, license to us, license to us, license to us. And Jeremy was the guy who said yes. He loved the idea of digital music, and so he would say, yeah, okay, um, you know, let's, let's put it together, let's make it happen. And then what would happen is that he would cut the deal, and the rest of the record label wouldn't follow through on the deal. So it would be like an inchworm that's like paralyzed where the front of the inchworm moves but then the back of the inchworm doesn't move also. So like they'd cut a deal to provide their catalog to Company X and then Company X would have the right but they wouldn't follow through by actually providing the catalog. And there was no way for him to make it to make them do it. Meanwhile he, he had this notion um, he built a company called Uplister and I'll talk about what that means in a second but, but he had this notion that the, the recording industry was visibly missing the boat that there was this new exciting thing happening and the record labels just weren't able to participate in it. So one day a bunch of engineers came to his office and said, we built this really cool technology. Um, What you do is you create a playlist and you can press play and the playlist will play music. In 1998, this was actually a new idea. Um, So he said, this sounds great. Let's make a company out of it. They called it Uplister. They had a logo and everything. Um, and, And Jeremy thought that, well, you know, I know how this is done. Right, I have the bullshit meter, I've done the negotiating, I've sat on the opposite side of the table in hundreds of cases. The record industry will uh, accept me with, quote, open arms, and I will be able to develop this this company that, that moves the industry forward. And he specifically saw it as innovative in nature and helpful to the record labels, because he knew that albums, as we think of them, were going to be unbundled, and he thought of playlists as the new way in which they were going to be bundled, Right. Music was going to be a commodity, recorded music was going to be everywhere, but the ability to turn recorded music into a product, into a format that would be appealing to consumers, that would have a social, what we now call a social media dimension to it, where people could pl- share their playlists, that was exciting to him. And He saw that as a space where he could eke out some economic value, so he got on board with them, he decided he was going to go talk to all of his old friends at EMI and at uh, then the other four major record labels. And what he ran into was this notion um, that as soon as he jumped ship, he was the enemy. And he was not welcomed with open arms. He now says that he thought of himself as naive. And he said that one of the major obstacles that he ran into was that the people he spoke to were jealous of him. They actually thought, wait a second, why is this guy going out and becoming a millionaire when we're sitting here like schmucks, You know, pulling down 150 grand licensing to you so that you can become a millionaire. And so there was this kind of obstructionist uh, value system that held sway at the at the major labels at the time. And he tried and tried and tried and could not obtain the licenses without which the streaming playlist business wouldn't work. So the way that the labels obstructed uh, primarily was by asking him for things that they knew he couldn't provide. Right? They had a certain amount of VC funding, but the record labels were each asking for millions of dollars up front. Right? He never managed to secure those licenses. Despite that fact, the company, which could only offer uh, 30-second clips that were licensed from AMG or whatever, uh, got three-quarters of a million users, which for 15 years ago was a shit-ton of people. Right, But by nine eleven. Uh, he had not managed to secure those licenses and the bottom fell out of the market and he had to close the doors, fire 35 people, send his wife and his kids back to, um, to England where they came from and basically shut the doors. And, you know what 's interesting is when you talk to these people who are involved in these in these uh, these enterprises, even after a decade or more, you can still sense the pain there 's this frustration, this sadness that he was not able to capitalize on this vision right he didn 't care about the money I mean he went on to become the CEO of um, Sibelius Software and is now the CEO of Symmetric. Jeremy does fine. He makes plenty of money. But what he really wasn't able to do was to take this vision of moving the music industry forward, of, of creating a business model for innovation and, and allowing things to progress. And he, he feels, you know, it, it's still quite painful for him to talk about it. All right, so flash forward eight years, right? There's this, uh, there's this guy who's working at Vimeo Um, and he's just kind of a tinkerer. He was a DJ in college. He's not really a coder. He's a designer. And he starts coming up, and he's a very handsome young man. He looks like this. Uh, His name is Justin Oulette. And he starts playing around with a piece of software um, that he says it's a design problem for him. He just wants a music... So, all right, so he's a DJ in college, and he puts all of his playlists on the Internet, um, but he can only put um, the names of the songs, right? Because there's no infrastructure to turn them into streaming playlists. So what he wants to do, he's never heard of Uplister because Uplister <coughs> crashed and burned while he was still in knee breaches, um, but he basically wants to do the same thing that Uplister tried to do. He wants to create a platform where you can create playlists, you press play, the, pr- the playlist plays, you can share it with your friends, they press play, the playlist plays. Right At this point still, 2008... It's an idea that's kind of been out there but nobody's doing it. It's not possible. So he, he becomes obsessed with this idea. Why can't I just click on a playlist and have it play? Right? So he starts to build it in his bedroom at night when he comes home from Vimeo. And after a couple of months, he's hacked together something pretty good, which he calls MuxTape. Now, he doesn't have any backing, he doesn't have any employees, he doesn't have any tech. All he has is his laptop in his bedroom and his job at Vimeo, which he quits. Once he this he starts to realize that this could actually be a product, so he's got a Tumblr blog that has some fairly influential people following it, and he posts this one day to his Tumblr blog. That's it. There's no marketing plan for it. There's no promotion, um, but because he's followed on Tumblr by a couple of influential bloggers, um, he gets like 35,000 signups in the first 24 hours. Right? It goes gangbusters. The site melts down. He has to move it on to Amazon Web Services, um, it's going crazy. But what happens at the same time is 24 hours after he posts this experiment, this non-commercial experiment to his Tumblr, he gets a phone call from the head of legal at Universal Music Group, who's like, uh, tell us what your address is so we know where to send the summons. That's the first contact he gets from the industry. Right? He says to this day he has no idea how they figured out like, where to call him, right? Um, so he enters into negotiations with the the major labels he figures like this is a game I know it's a game they're going to rook me for all their worth but all I care about is making this cool thing happen from a design standpoint he's a very visual thinker he just wants every area in the screen that when you touch it, it plays music because that doesn't exist he just wants it to be super easy for people to be able to curate music online in a way that actually streams and plays and works and is beautiful and is elegant Um, And so future DJs in college will have a tool to share their playlists the way that he did not. Um, So he enters into these negotiations, and he runs into a bunch of of challenges. Um, One of them, as I mentioned, was that the threat of litigation is right there from literally day one. Um, But then when he actually goes to the record labels and he sits down with them, he says it was like what he called a Jekyll and Hyde experience. He'd look one way, and the marketing guys would be like, Justin, hey, we love mux tape. We all use it around the office. It's awesome. And then he'd look the other way, and the legal department would be like, we're going to see you into the ground. You're going to be broke. Your grandchildren are going to be broke. You know, And it would be the same meeting, and he'd be like, guys, and these are they're great direct quotes in, in the book, which I'll be signing at 4.30 in the <laughs> lobby. It's also freely available online if, if you're of that persuasion. It's Creative Commons licensed, and there's going to be a, a views um, BitTorrent bundle too. Anyway, so he's getting this Jekyll, he's getting like whiplash from these Jekyll and Hyde meetings from uh, the lawyers at the major labels and, uh, and, and the, the business development guys. And what happens is, you know, again, this is 10 years later. The labels are still demanding tens of millions of dollars up front just to play ball. Plus they want equity in the company, a couple percentage points apiece per major. They want to be able to use the platform to promote what he calls payola. Uh, and they want a creative control over the design of the platform. And to him that was like beyond the pale because he's a design geek. He's like the thing that I'm letting you tear the backside out of me for is the ability to have creative control over this. If I give you all the money and I give you creative control, I've got nothing. So he's still negotiating, though, because he's thinking maybe there's a way through it. And then what happens is one day he gets a message from Amazon Web Services that says, pursuant to a demand from the RIAA, we've taken your website down. And he's like, you guys are even worse snakes than I thought, right? Because, you know, we were negotiating, uh, the service has, like, 600,000 users at that point there's still been no marketing, no promotion but he's like the darling of the blogosphere he's on national public radio Right, all the hipsters love the service um, including the ones who work at the record labels and, um, and they just pulled the plug on it and he'd actually been in um, acquisition talks with Amazon so he calls Amazon and he's like can you talk to your sibling and they're like no, no can do, there's nothing we can do he calls up the RIAA. they're like we didn't do it Um, but we're not going to tell anyone anyone to stop it either. We're not going to call Amazon and tell them to to stop it. So basically, the site just goes offline in the midst of negotiations, and uh, there's absolutely nothing he can do about it, and it disappears. And he, he says that... On the one hand it was the best year of his life but on the other hand he felt betrayed like this was not a good faith negotiation right he said he knew it was a game but they didn't even live up to the rules of the game as he understood it and he still again this is these are these are not avaricious or malicious people these aren't pirates down to take down the man these are people who have a vision of what the internet could mean for music and culture and musical industry and who just want to see it happen right these are dreamers who are getting smashed Right? So he still still in 2012 when I spoke to him I wish the state of music on the internet was better. That's like his lasting regret from this. Okay, so let's talk about a slightly different business model. Um, There used to be way back in the mid-1990s a series of companies that all ended in the letter Z because Z is the coolest letter of the alphabet because it's the last letter. Um, So there was this search engine called Files that was part of the Z company and there was this guy that some of you might recognize who worked at that company. His name is Michael Robertson. Um, so Michael Robertson uh, would look through the kind of uh, what we now call the big data, but look at the logs from the uh, from the search queries on the the search engine, and in. The early 1997, this term started popping up, MP3, right? Nobody ever heard of MP3. It was just invented in 93, right, by Fraunhofer. So he starts to see people searching for MP3 on his search engine, and he says, I better look into this. He says, huh, digital music. He goes out and he buys the URL, mp3.com, which was a very smart thing. He's a very smart guy, Uh, although he's kind of a political libertarian, which... I've noticed they're either brilliant or stupid. There's no in-between when you come to libertarians. Um, He won't disagree, I think. Um, So he buys mp3.com, and he starts this music business that at first is just a website where you can post mp3s. And actually, major label artists get really into it because what they're noticing is that posting free music online is actually growing their audience bases. And there's a little bit of a skirmish within the labels between the marketing departments and the distribution departments, but they pretty much are on board. There's no legal battles with them and mp3.com. mp3.com gets huge for the 90s. Has like 6 million unique visitors per month. They go public in 1999, the biggest um, com IPO to date. It's like these six, and they're profitable. Right, it's the biggest success story of dot-com 1.0 in the music space. It is a public company with half a billion dollars uh, or quarter billion dollars in the bank. It, it is profitable. It has major label participation. It has no legal entanglements. Um, everything is going great. Uh, until he decides that he wants to do something a little more, right? He's, he, he's not satisfied just to have it be a site where people can host MP3s. He wants to create a service that helps consumers kind of move beyond the CD album collection world. His, his, his notion is that increasingly we're going we're to be connecting to the internet and connecting to our music on multiple devices. So why do you need to carry around a different library with each device? I should be able to be at home and listen to my music library. I should be able to go to work and listen to my music library. We are all familiar with this concept now. We call it the cloud, right? But this was a brand new concept at the time. Music should live in the cloud. Consumers should have one library. They should be able to listen to that library wherever they go. So he builds it. And it's called my.mp3.com. And his notion is he doesn't need record label permission to do this because there's something called fair use, right? If I have a CD, I can listen to the CD at home, or I can listen to the CD at work. Why shouldn't a company enable me to listen to my music at home and at work, right? And it's the same principle that cable providers, like the Comcast ruling a few years ago, it's kind of being debated again with Aereo uh, in the Supreme Court right now, but this notion like, how far can a service company go to enable you to do whatever you want with the things that you own? So his basic attitude was, we can do it, uh, it's legal. It's fair use. Uh, let's go for it. The only problem was on the big data side. How do you actually get all the data into the cloud? So he had this brilliant answer to the to the question. You have a CD. The cloud already has the songs available to stream. Why don't you use the CD as a kind of key into the service? So what you do, were any of you actually subscribers to mymp3.com? yeah. It was awesome, right? You, you take your CD, you take your, what came out that year, like um, Amy Mann's Magnolia. That was a big record for me that year. Or like D'Angelo's Voodoo, right? You put it into your CD-ROM drive, you log on to my.mp3.com, and all of a sudden it recognizes it and you've unlocked the ability to stream that album. So then you go to work or you go to your friend's house, you can listen to your, your album. From his perspective, this is high security. You have to have the songs in hand to be able to play them, right? That's super high security. Um, there has to be a physical CD in order for you to listen to it. It's as high security as listening to a CD is. Right? Um, So that's not a problem. He also provides this as a back-end service to a bunch of music retailers who see their sales leap by 20 to 40% as soon as they Uh, Add the instant listening features So that if you buy a CD on Amazon All of a sudden you can stream the whole CD instantly You don't have to wait for it to show up in your doorstep He's like, this is great I've solved a problem for the recording industry I just bought another 10 years Of market value for the CD as a format Because I'm extending its value into the internet I'm making the CD do things That it could never do before Isn't that great, guys? Um, unfortunately, it wasn't so great uh, from the perspective of the recording industry. He received C&Ds from all the majors a couple of weeks after launch. He did cease and desist. Immediately, they shut the service down. They're like, oh, hey, we want to be your friends. Let's not get into fisticuffs here. The labels sued him anyway. Why? Why would the labels persist in their litigation when that's something that Content owners rarely do because they don't want to set a bad precedent. They don't want the, a judge to say, actually, you know, he was right. Um, they persisted in their litigation because he had just gone IPO and he had hundreds of millions of dollars sitting around. So they sued him for everything they were worth. Michael's been through this three times now. Um, so what happened was uh, they were found uh, liable for damages. They, basically, all the money they had left, about $50 million, had to be paid out. They went bankrupt, and then to add uh, insult to injury... Uh, Vivendi, which owned Universal Music Group, the biggest label at the time, came over and said, well, you know what? We'd like to buy that little company of yours. That's a pretty interesting uh, technology product you have. How about, let's see, you went IPO at $20 a share. At your peak, you were worth over $100 a share. How about we buy you for $5 a share? Or we could, you know, pursue you uh, to the gates of hell. So Michael had to sell out. MP3 sold out to uh, Universal. It became a little piece of technology that fueled press play, which was their attempt to... go direct to the consumer and screw all the the retailers out of business. Uh, They failed, the technology disappeared, and now it's gone. Um, And uh, it's interesting, Michael still, his Twitter handle is MP3Michael. He's owned like 10 companies since then, right? Um, But he still thinks of himself as the guy from MP3.com. And he says it was a sad day because he had all these great plans and visions, and he wasn't able to achieve it. Again, Say what you will, here's a man who's driven by a vision, what he describes as a vision. He sees the future of digital music. He wants to unlock it. He can't do it. How am I doing on time? I'm all right, right? You're joking. Ah, fuck me. All right, so I'll go through this quickly because I want to get to the punchline. So there's this guy. a few years uh, at the same time, actually, working for the two big music sellers online who uh, competed with Amazon, he saw that the writing was on the wall for them, that Amazon was going to own what was left of the dwindling CD business. His name is, uh, you guys know him? David Packman, one of the smartest guys ever in digital music. Um, He decided that he would do something very similar to what my mp3.com did, although he was actually kind of working on it beforehand. But unlike uh, Michael, he wanted to get record label permission. He thought, there's probably a fair use argument, but I don't want to get sued. Let's not waste all of our time and money defending ourselves. Let's get licenses. Right, And his motivation, again, was a notion of elegance. He used to work at Apple in product design in the music area in the mid-1990s. And he had this notion that technology should be elegant. It should be easy for consumers to use. Um, So he went to the labels and he tried to get licenses for what they sued Michael for not getting licenses for. They asked for... Hundreds, uh, Tens of millions of dollars up front. They asked for the product to be changed according to their plans. They wanted to have promotional space within the interface. They wanted equity in the company, and they wanted uh, about 50% of revenue. Basically, the same thing they asked for uh, from uh, from Justin Newlett at Muxtape a decade later, they were shaking David Pakman down for. Um, well, he couldn't get it. He never signed any deals because the terms were too onerous. Despite the fact that you had to upload via a 56.6k modem all your music into the cloud because he couldn't get a scan-and-match license. Uh, He had 8 million users, but they just couldn't make a go of it. So who bought them? Bertelsmann, which owned BMG, which was then one of the major record labels. They got integrated into Bertelsmann's e-commerce group. Then the guy who had the vision to buy them got sacked three months later. Uh, the whole unit got shut down a year later, and the technology disappeared beneath the waves. Right? It sounds familiar, right? It's the same story over and over again. So let me tell you this last story, which I, I really love. Um, this is something, this, is, this happened about five years ago. This is an initiative inside of Warner Music Group. There's this absolutely brilliant guy, a lot of you probably know him, Jim Griffin. He runs the FU list, which you should all be on. Uh, and he was working with a guy named uh, Jack Foreman, uh, who had been a Gartner analyst, another very smart guy. And they had this idea that well, the major record labels, maybe we don't need to work on technology to distribute music. Maybe all we need to do is figure out a way to make whatever consumers want to do legal. So why don't we just have a covenant not to sue? We can ink a deal directly with an ISP, and whatever the ISP's customers do is legal as long as we're getting paid proactively not to sue anybody, right? So it's a little bit of a tough sell because technically it's called extortion or a protection racket. Um but on the other hand, it's actually the only business model that really makes sense if what you want to do is avoid litigation and allow as many people to do as much as possible while rights holders still get paid. Um, so long story short, all Jim Griffin wants – I say wants because I know him and I know that he still wants this – is if there's a pool of money, there should be a fair way to split it. That's it. Make some money happen. Split it between all the rights holders. Everyone's going to be happy. Um, but they ran into all kinds of problems I don't have time to get into. Fortunately, you can read all about them in the book. Um, what it mostly came down to is the labels mistrusted and hated each other so much that they couldn't get the deals done. Right? There was even one meeting that was supposed to happen between Sony and Universal, uh, between the, the CEOs uh, of Sony and Universal. And they never had the meeting because they couldn't agree whose office to have it in. You can't make this stuff up. It's amazing, the stories that come out. So basically, despite the backing of Edgar Bronfman um, uh, at Warner, uh, they, and $3 million earmarked by Bronfman, 18 months go by. They don't sign up a single ISP, and they don't sign up a single major record label. Uh, so the project pew, tanks and goes under the water. I could talk all day about it. It's very sad. So the last thing I did in researching this chapter... And it brings a tear to uh, to Jack's eye, he told me. Uh, the last thing I did was I, I called up uh, Larry Kenswell. Now, Larry was the head of licensing for Universal, the biggest record label, during all these years, from 1997 to 2008. And I said, Larry, what the fuck were you thinking? Right? It's like that story about the drowning bishop who says, no, I don't need the raft, I don't need the helicopter, and then he goes to heaven, and he's like, God, you let me drown. And God's like, who do you think sent the raft in the helicopter? Right? It's the same story. It's like Larry, all these companies came to you and said, we want to build your business. We want to bring you into the digital age. We want to network your customers. Uh, We want to provide a platform for people to get paid. And, you know, you sent them away. Why did you do it? And he told me some really interesting stuff. First of all, the labels never lost sight of the fact that, uh, that... they, they always wanted the retailer's piece of the pie. The labels wanted to work up the whole distribution chain and own every single dollar that consumers paid without having to give any of it up. And so they always wanted to... Anybody who looked like a viable distributor for their music, they actually didn't want to enable them to go into business because they were covetous of their margin. Right? This is from the horse's mouth. Um, then there was what he calls the not-invented-here problem, like with, like, chorus, right? If Warner Music comes up with an idea, Sony Music's not going to sign on because it wasn't invented here, right? It makes you wonder how anything has actually ever happened in the industry at all. And then this one's the capper for me. He says that the attitude within the labels at the time was, quote, Quote, why license them and make a little when you can sue them and make a lot? And Jeremy Silver told me a similar thing, that when he was at uh, EMI, they had this notion that you would uh, shake the VC tree and the the dollars would rain down like leaves. Um, So there's this very cynical attitude among the labels that, you know, here's a bunch of people who are just waiting to be fleeced. Right. And um, Kenswell says the same thing. He says as to those like multi multi million dollar cash advances that every single company gets asked for, it has one of two functions. If they're a smart company, it's an entrance ticket. It shows that they have enough capital to play ball. So maybe you're taking more capital than they have left over to be smart with. But it shows that they're serious. If they're not a smart company, then they're never going to make you any money anyway. And you may as well take all their money at the the front end because you're never going to get anything in the back end. Again, incredibly cynical business. Uh, and so his last uh, salvo was, it's, it's hard to understand if there was any uh, strategy going on at the labels at all. And what I'll point out in my remaining 20 seconds is that you know, the list of casualties in the digital music space is actually hundreds of companies long. Innovator after innovator after innovator gets struck down, not because the labels are stupid, not because the labels are mean, but because the legal system demands an economic model that is fundamentally out of sync with our technological platform. So in order for any of this to change, in order for all the great companies that are represented here today and all the dreamers and the visionaries who see a vision for the future of music to capitalize on those visions, we have to fundamentally change the laws. We have to change the way that ownership and permission are structured. I have a lot of interesting ideas about how that might happen that are outlined in this book, which I'll be signing in the lobby at 4.30. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.